Recorded by The Way in Brea. Lead pastor Von Jarrett has a heart for the people at The Way and a desire to reach the lost. The Way's production department prays this message is a blessing to you and that you find yourself closer to God through application. And uh, some of them I knew about, and, and some of them we don't. Um, and then I see faces that I haven't seen for a while. I'm just so excited. Uh, one of the things early on in the ministry that used to be really hard is, is feeling like, God, what's going on? And who's there? Who's not there? And as I've grown in the ministry, one of the things I've realized is like, God knows what he's doing. Amen? Amen. So uh, I am encouraged, and I, and I just want to encourage you guys to, to press in. I believe that God has something for me, and God has something for you this morning as we, uh, as we gather. Amen? Amen. So um, I'm going to jump in a little bit here. Uh, we're in the week number seven of our series, The Archetype. And uh, it's not the end, but seven is the number of completion. Say amen. Amen. So even though we're not at the end of this series, I do believe that in some ways it's going to be kind of the hype of what this series is really all about. So, uh, so again, I, I hope that you engage. Um, let me do a brief recap, and then i uh, got a little something for you guys. Uh, just a time of prayer. So this series, Archetype, and why we decided to do that as we started the year, uh, uh, just in prayer and as we were meeting, began to think like, well, what's the most important thing to, to start this year with? Is it 2020 and vision and seeing clearly and all that cool stuff? Partially, but more so than anything, what do we want to see? We want to see Jesus. Amen. Amen. We want to see the archetype, the beginning, why, why we come, why we gather, uh, what this year should be about. So this definition of archetype is the original pattern, a model uh, of which all things of the same type are representations or copies of. And an archetype is most commonly used to mean the perfect example of something, right? We want to see the perfect example, and we find that in Christ. Uh, we took this from Carl Jung in the 1800s, and he gave us these uh, 12 types of people, 12 types of uh, characters and, and characteristics. So the ones that we have not covered yet, and we said that Jesus is the archetype of all of these, the ones we have not covered yet, or excuse me, yeah, are the sage or the wise man, right? Um, the innocent or the pure, the ruler, the hero, and then the jester or the joker. The ones that we have covered, we looked at the caregiver, right? He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He loves us. He provides care for us. Um, uh, he serves us and asks us to also be served as we are servants as well. We looked at the rebel who goes against the grain, who does things his own way, uh, regardless of what the church is doing, what others should, should say that he should do. Uh, he rebels against that to do what the Father desires for him to do. We looked at him as the creator when Ray preached that message for us and everything that he's brought into existence. And he did all those things for us. He didn't need any of those things. He did it for us, this creativity that comes from the Father. Uh, we looked at him as uh, the magician, the archetype of the magician, right? That he's not doing magic, though, that uh, there's no smoke and mirrors, 
that he really is doing miracles, right? He's the archetype. He uh, suspends reality. Um, uh, just such a wonderful thing, gift that we find in Jesus. Then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the orphan and how um, in the spiritual realm that all of us are orphans, right? We're trying to get back to our father who we've been separated from, who's actually looking for us, right? Um, so that was wonderful to see Jesus that way, that he lived his whole life here, physically separated from the father in a sense, um, and uh, calling us back. One of the scriptures I didn't share that's been on my heart, Jesus, when he leaves his disciples, he says, listen, I will not leave you orphans. I'm coming back for you. Right? I go to prepare a place for you. And he even tells them, I'm not, you are orphans, but I'm not going to leave you that way. And then last week, our last one uh, that we've done so far is the explorer and how Jesus, from the time of his birth and going from Bethlehem to Egypt and back to Nazareth and then all around this region and going to these pockets of people from different cultures and different backgrounds with different issues uh, to just go and love on them, right, and to, uh, to present himself to them and to change their lives uh, and that spirit that he desires us to have. You know, we talked about going on Sidewalk Sanctuary today. And a lot of churches, they commend us for what we do in the city, but I don't think it's commendable for us. I think it's just the call of Christ, right? Like, you're supposed to go out and talk to people. You're supposed to go out and share the love of God. If we all just huddle up in this room and we say, let's just wait until people say, you know what, I think I want Jesus today. I'm going to go over to that church. That's not what God intended for us. He intended for us to be going out and sharing his love. He says, our feet are beautiful if we bring the good news of the gospel, right? So this morning, uh, we're going to look at um, Jesus, the archetype of the lover. <laughs> so I think uh, I'm pretty sure that those of us who have been following along and know kind of what the topics have been, we probably could guess that this is what we would cover today coming out of uh, Valentine's Day this week. Um, leading up to Valentine's Day, I, I spoke last week to some of our men in the church um, about flowers and words. <laughs> Flowers and words. I was uh, in text message conversations and in, in phone calls with some of the guys. And uh, this week when, when Valentine's Day rolled around, I went and got Barry flowers. I went and got Naomi a flower. Uh, uh, I think I told you guys last week that she asked me to be her Valentine. Naomi did. And uh, it was a madhouse out there in the world looking for flowers. There were men everywhere. They were throwing stuff and diving for flowers, looking for the lowest price. I was dying laughing. Like, there's guys, you, you'd see them go up to the flowers, like, oh, that's nice. And they, they flip the tag, and they're like, all right, on to the next one. <laughs> flip the tag. They're like, man, these things are going to die in a couple of days. So I'm, I'm right there with them, and we're out there doing our thing, looking for all these flowers. And uh, I thought I was doing big things because I bought two bouquets of flowers. And then I, I went to the lady and I said, hey, can you, can you rewrap these and make them together, make them into one nice bouquet? And then I got home and, and I gave them to Mary. And like any good man, I began to pat myself on the back, right? I said, babe, I want you to know that nobody else has this bouquet of flowers because it's two bouquets that I had rewrapped for you. You're the only one. And... Uh, when it comes to the words, so that's the flowers I talked about. And just to talking to the guys about, don't, don't blow it this year, guys. Get, get some type of gift. And then the words that I was talking to the men about, as I told them that, hey, we have to express ourselves in more than just, hey, babe, I love you. Hey, babe, I love you. 
You know, like we gotta do better than that, uh, express why we love and so on and so forth. So at dinner on Friday night, I began to tell Mary about, about uh, her joy. You know, I said, hey, the way that you, um, your joy and how you fight for joy and people are try constantly trying to steal it and you go and you battle to have joy. And I said, and then you bring that into our marriage. I said, if it was just up to me, there'd be no joy in our lives. You know what I mean? All business all the time. I said, but you bring that joy into our marriage and you bring that joy, amen. You bring that joy into our family and you bring that joy into our church. And uh, so... So this is what I was talking to men about is like, hey, use that vocabulary. Like, don't just say I love you. Tell them why you love them and so on and so forth. So we had a really good Valentine's Day. But then as we started to talk about all this stuff, you know, I was talking to her about uh, the store and why I wanted to share with her more specifically certain things. Um, I paused and I began to think about this question. Uh, how many people stop to thank God for creating flowers, you know? Like we all went out there and I, I walk into the store and they're everywhere, right? And there's beautiful ones and blue ones and green ones and purple ones and white ones and long stem and short stem and all this stuff going on. And I said to myself like, man, like God, you made all of these things. And here we are thinking we're doing big things because we got it rewrapped. <laughs> and then this idea um, about these words and I was able to express these things to Mary and encourage the guys to express these things to their wives. And then I said to myself, Lord, you actually gave us these emotions of love. And then you gave us a language to be able to express it. But we think we're doing big things. Lord, you're the archetype, right? We're not the archetype. You're the archetype. So church, love is before and beyond everything else. And Jesus is the archetype of the lover. Love is before and love is beyond everything else. And Jesus is the archetype. Love has already been defined for us by God. And because of that, it cannot be redefined or altered no matter how much we try. Yes. Oh, That's right. Okay. Love has always existed. And we can't try to redefine it based on my experiences or your experiences. It is what it is. Um, our experiences don't alter that. When we try to do that, um, we have not succeeded in loving and we have not succeeded in being loved. All we've really done is diminished our capacity to experience love. Yeah. And we've dimmed the light of love that God is already trying to shine. Does that make sense? When we try to alter it, when we try to change it, when we try to make it what we want it to be, what we're doing is diminishing our real capacity to love and to be loved. And we're dimming the light. God has shined a clear light on what it is. And we begin to dim that light when we use our experiences to try to define it. I remember what I used to think love was before salvation. Um, and when I look around now at what passes for love in today, uh, in this day and age, uh, it saddens me, you know? We, uh, we were made for love, which is why even when we don't want God, we still want love, right? We could say, I don't want Jesus, I don't want church, I don't want God, but I do want love. And what we begin to do is we contort and we twist. We become mad scientists and we say, let's add some of this and some of that. And we're going to make our own definition of love and our own experience of love uh, to try to satisfy that within us, that longing for love, right? So this morning, this is my goal with you guys. We're going to look at Jesus as the archetype of the lover. We're going to shine the light of love as bright as we can this morning. Um, we're going to try to reignite our capacity for love, right? Whatever 
we've diminished in capacity, we're gonna try to reopen that up and say, you know what, actually we are capable of loving and being loved if we do it the way that God has called us to do it. Um, and I also want to uh, reignite our desire and our willingness to let love be what God has called it to be, all right? Not what we want it to be, not what we've allowed others to convince us that it is, but what God says it is and what he's given us as an example. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray for that. Lord, we thank you for bringing us this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. We thank you that love is in the air, Lord God. We thank you that uh, for this last week, people have been thinking about love. People have been thinking about love that they've lost, Lord. Think people have been thinking about gaps and holes in their heart and in their relationships and in their friendships and in their marriages and in their parenting, Lord God. Not just so that we have those thoughts, Lord. We thank you, though, because it's supposed to lead us and guide us unto you, Lord. You've given us a capacity. You've given us a definition. You've given us hope. You've given us something that draws us in to desire love and to be loved and to give love, Lord God. We ask that you would spark that in us again. We ask that you would reignite that flame and that fire, Lord God. We ask that you would um, open up our capacity for love and to be loved and to experience love here in this place this morning, Lord God. Um, in the way that you desire, that we would be changed this morning, Lord God, that we would leave this place able to be more loved, and that we would leave this place able to love better. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. We're just going to have a time. May be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me, for you loved me. Before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Listen how Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father. He loves us, and he wants us to have the love that he has within the Trinity. This Father, Son, Holy Spirit, consuming love. The Bible is a love story. Say amen. amen. It's a love story about how the source of love is calling his most cherished creation back into true love. When I, when I talk to people about reading the Bible and they don't want to read it, they don't want to pick it up, it drives me crazy. It's like this is where you find life. This is where you find love. This is where you find hope. It's a love story, and it's a good one. He's telling us about who we are, where we came from, why he created us, how far we've gotten from him, and then how to come back into true love with him. Yes, amen. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We were birthed out of this Trinitarian perfect love and into a world without sin. And we can't forget that that was our origin. When you look around about the world that you live in right now, uh, and the experiences you're having when it comes to love and relationship, it's easy to forget how we got here. There was, uh, the Trinity existed, and God says, let us make them in our image, and he birthed us in perfect love. There was nothing lacking, nothing missing. It was as good as it could have ever possibly been, and we came into a world that did not have any sin in it. That's where we started, and that's where he's trying to get us back to. John chapter 3, verse 16, many of us know this, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Father loves us so much that he's willing to sacrifice that which he loves most on our behalf. Yeah. Think about how much you're loved. 
If he says, I've been with my son, we've been with the spirit for all of eternity, and I'll sacrifice that son because that's how much I love you. His love for us is not on terms of equality. It's not quid pro quo. It's not give and take. He doesn't look and say, well, I'll give you this if you give me that. Yeah, that's right. right? He doesn't look and say, well, how much do you have to offer in this relationship? He knows from Jump Street that he's going to give more than he's going to receive. He knows that he's going to love you better than you're going to love him. And it's crazy to think that he doesn't hold back. And then think about our definition of love. I'll love you if you love me. I'll give to you if you give to me. What do you owe me? What do I owe you? Let's get down to business, right? That is not the definition of love, and that's not how he loves. He does not withhold anything from us, which is crazy when you think about it. So we have this little bit of a preview so far of this arc of love that you see in the scriptures, right? Where we start with God and this this birthing of us and this creating of us. Um, Then you have at the end, he says, look, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to draw them back into love, right? And then at the very end of of what we see in in the gospels, Jesus says, listen, Father, I want them to have what we have. I want them to know this kind of love. Uh, That's what scripture kind of reveals to us in an overview. I want to look at some of the specifics. And I'm going to start in Genesis. A little bit of reading here, so follow along with the story. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds over the air, uh, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I've given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in that day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. I'm going to skip down to verse 15. It talks about the rivers through verse 14. Verse 15, then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it's not good 
that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, the birds of the air, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Good stuff. Amen? Amen. So again, in this, uh, this story, beginning of our scriptures, this description of the Trinity and the first two people, we see love is perpetuated, love is multiplied through men and women, and parents and children, it's both physically done and spiritually done, right? We see just with, within the Trinity and these first two, this perpetuation, God is going to multiply love. There's going to be generations and generations of this, right? There is already before Adam and Eve have children, we now see the children of God, right? So we see this family structure that's already uh, birthed into existence in the first couple chapters uh, of our Bible. We also see love being refined through friendship and through unity, right? You can read through these verses and, and easily, in my opinion, miss some of this stuff, right? But there's friendship here as well. Within, within the Trinity itself, within man and God, within a woman and a man, right? There's not just um, uh, love in that sense of a man and a woman coming together to be one flesh, and right? and having these offspring, but there's also relationship and friendship in this. She's comparable to me. I have all these other uh, relationships and all these other abilities, but there's, there's nobody comparable to him. And God brought a friend. Brought, God brought somebody comparable to him for him to walk with, right? Here's the question that we need to ask, though, or the question I want you guys to ask this morning. What is it that love requires that we learn about in Genesis 1 and 2? Right? It's the birth of love, and we're seeing it happen right before our eyes, but what's actually required for this love to, uh, to come into existence? The first one is time. Say time. Time. All right. What time is it? Got a few more minutes with you guys. With God, love existed before time existed. Say amen. amen. Right? He was always, what did Jesus say when he was praying at the end for his disciples? He says, I want them to know the love that we had before the world, the foundations of the world existed. Think about that for a second. He said, there was no earth, there was no world, there was no people, but we already had love. And he said, that's the kind of love that I want them to know. But when it comes to you and I, time is a key element when it comes to love. God creates a world, God breathes life into us, and then he says, there is time associated with you being able to experience love. Time comes into existence, we come into existence, and we experience love in time. Verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. 
before this, right, it says that God's just speaking things into existence. Let there be light. Bam, there's light. <laughs> Heavens, earth, stars, moon, sun, shine, all this stuff. And he's just speaking it and it's happening. But when it comes to us, there's this time element where he begins to shape us. Amen. And he begins to form us. And he's picking up dust and he's shaping it. And then he takes the time and he breathes life into us. Time is part of this love thing that we're experiencing. In John chapter 20, uh, verse 22, Jesus is reforming us, right? Think about this for a second. He's, he's back. What, what he's actually doing is he's reforming us. This is how God formed us in the beginning. We fall and we fall away from God. And God doesn't just come in the form of, of the son and say, hey, I'm going to make everything better. What he says is I have to reform you. I have to make you again. You have to be born again. So what does that look like? In John chapter 20, verse 22, he's reforming these believers. And it says, when he said this, Jesus is speaking to them, the disciples, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. We get born again the same way that we were born originally, by the breath of God, breathing life into us. And Jesus' experience with his disciples was all about what? Time spent with them. Years of saying, look, you guys are grown men and you've been through all these experiences. So I'm going to spend a few years with you, reforming you, spending time with you. So you know what it means to be in relationship with God. And then I'm going to breathe my spirit upon you and into you. And man will become a living being once again. We were dying before that. And now we're living after that. Love takes time. Say amen. Verse 20 of our scriptures earlier says, But for Adam there was found, or was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman, and he brought her to the man. Adam had to lose some of himself in order for love to come about with his companion. Right? You want love? It's not just about what you can receive from somebody else. It's about what you have to lose in order to have love. Right? Adam lost a rib, but that's just a foreshadowing of what it really means to be in love and to be in relationship. And where do we get that from? We get that from the Father, right? God is creating us, and then he takes his life source. He takes some of himself, and he breathes it into man to, to cause man to live. Right? That's God giving of himself to that which he loves giving of himself for that which he loves. When Christ comes, he's giving of himself for that which he loves. Same thing with Adam, right? Whether he knows it or not, he's like, hey, it's going to cost you. There's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be pain. It's, it's something of yourself has to be given if you want to have this love relationship and this companionship. How many of us are, are constantly thinking when it comes to love, what can I give? Or are we thinking, what can I get? What do I deserve? What's owed me? Another thing I love about this uh, is that God spent what? One-on-one -on -one time with Adam when there was no Eve, and then God spent one-on-one -on -one time with Eve before he brought her to Adam. Amen. All right. Time, guys. You want love? It's going to take time. You want a real relationship with God? It takes time. And we're not talking about coming to church. God didn't do all this creation and say, hey, guys, I'll be back on the first day of every week. We'll spend a couple hours together. <laughs> no, he breathes life into them, and then he walks with them, and he talks with them, and he shows them things. 
gives him experiences. I love that he doesn't tell us exactly what he does in that time. He gives us this, this quick overview of like, hey, Adam, here's all kinds of stuff. Name it. <laughs> Handle your business. It's all for you, man. I love you. Here it is. But he doesn't, doesn't tell us much about what their conversations were like. And the same with Eve. If, if there was, I don't know, there's a lot of times I'd like to go back and hear God talk. But if I was a woman, <laughs> I would love to go back to when God made Eve and just see what did they talk about and how long was that period of time. Because it just says that he formed him, formed her out of his rib, and Adam was in a deep sleep. That could have been an hour, two hours. It could have been two weeks. It could have been a month. Who knows how long it was. But he's just with Eve, Amen. spending time. And what is he spending time talking about? Think about this. Imagine not existing, you don't exist, and then Eve all of a sudden is birthed into reality and she's birthed into consciousness, God breathes life into her, and the first thing she sees is the one who loves her more than anybody has ever loved her or ever will love her. It's love is the first thing she experiences. Yes. Love's number one ingredient is time, one-on-one -on -one time with God. After you spend one-on-one -on -one time with God, then you can spend one-on-one -on -one time with another person and God, right? It's not like God said, okay, one-on-one -on -one time with Adam, one-on-one -on -one time with Eve. All right, now you guys go ahead and, and get together and do that whole two become one flesh thing. No, God brings Eve to Adam, and then the three of them spend time together with God. Yeah. Isn't that what the scriptures tell us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, Right? Not apart from God, but with God. Time. Time together. Time together in the presence of God. Time together seeking God. Time together in the word of God. The second thing I think we see in Genesis 1 and 2 about love is the environment in which love flourishes. Right? Time is an ingredient. You've got to have it or there ain't going to be no love. But an environment is so important. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden East of, eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as well. We've kind of talked about this a little bit, but God didn't need food. God didn't need companionship, and God did not need physical intimacy. But he planned for that. He gave that to us. And he gave it to us in an amazing fullness with foresight. He doesn't need food, but he makes all this food that we can eat. He doesn't need uh, physical intimacy, but he makes man and women in a way that they can have physical intimacy as well. He doesn't need uh, companionship in the way that we need companionship, but he knows us and he gave these things to us, but he gave them to us in fullness. He gave it to us with this foresight of what life was going to be like for us. God not only gives us the necessities, but he gives us enhancements as well. I want you to really think about that. I was having a conversation with somebody about the difference between uh, real needs and just like desires and wants this week. Amongst the leaders, we were talking about certain things. And it's like, listen, we have just a jacked up understanding of need. Like, what we want, we usually call it a need. It's not. The good thing about God is he knows the difference between what you need and what you want. And he says, listen, this is a necessity. I'm going to give that to you. But also, I'm going to give you enhancements. <laughs> he says, you'll need food, but I'll give you endless choices of food. 
Earlier I was talking about flowers, going into the store to buy them for Valentine's Day. I looked it up and it says that there's over 400,000 species of flowers. And that's just what we know about. Think about God. We don't need flowers. And he gives us flowers. And he doesn't just give us two or three. He says, here's 400,000 different types of flowers. Bam! <laughs> that's just what we know about. There's places we haven't gone. There's things we haven't seen. And there's already 400,000 different types of flowers, right? They're not a necessity. They're an enhancement. But what do they do? They speak to the joy that God wants us to experience in love. Right? Joy in this um, abundance. Love flourishes in an environment of abundance. He gave us lots of animals, lots of flowers, lots of land, lots of trees, lots of different types of fruit. Thank God for, for avocados. Yes. <laughs> I went vegan and man, Lord, you knew before eternity passed that I was gonna need avocados. Excuse me, I was gonna want avocados. I don't need them, but he gave them to us. Imagine if we just had like broccoli. <laughs> Love flourishes in an environment of, of, um, of abundance. So not only do we need time with God, but our God, when he says, hey, I want you to have love, I want you to have joy, I want you to have these things, he did it in abundance. He starts pouring these things on, not just enough. Think about it in our relationships. Are we, are we a just enough in love, or are we in abundance when it comes to the things of love? Love also flourishes in an environment with boundaries. Nobody's excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> Look at what God does. He gives us the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden that he put us in, but then he says, hey, there's got to be boundaries. Yeah. Don't eat of it. <laughs> Why, Lord? Why'd you put it there? Because you're going to need it, but we're going to be back to this time thing. There'll be a time and a place for that. Yes. Just pay attention to my boundaries and love will flourish. Love will abound. I gave you these boundaries for a reason. These are the same kind of boundaries that God sets in other areas of our life, right? He sets when uh, he says, here, look, I'm going to give you man, I'm going to give you woman, and you guys are going to have physical intimacy, but that comes at a time. Amen. It's there already. You have everything to make it work, but it's not for now, it's for later. The tree is there, but it's not for now, it's for later. There has to be boundaries. We've looked at, so far, a bit of love's origin, Right? Where does it come from and where did it start and how did God kind of breathe these things upon us? I want to take a quick look at love's definition, like the song said, right? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Stop there before I get into verse 4. God is saying, look, love is um, before and beyond everything. I don't care if you have all this faith and you go to church all the time and you're the first one to sign up for, line, uh, uh, sign up for sidewalk sanctuary and you come in and you give your tithe every week. He says, listen, if you don't have love, none of that stuff matters. Put your works to the side. It does not matter. Love first. Love first. Love first. 
Then he gives us the definition in verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, it thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things, and love never fails. God gives us a definition. I want to read it again, and then as soon as you hit one that you don't have, like scratch yourself off the list, okay? <laughs> love suffers long and is kind. Dang it, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to suffer. If Mary doesn't do something I want her to do or say something I want her to say or respond to me in the way that I want, to, I want her to respond, my kindness goes out the window just like that. There's no suffering, and there's definitely not suffering long. <laughs> Love doesn't envy, does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not about what you can get. It's not provoked, and it thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. We were watching. Mary told me to watch uh, um, um, the, the lady that did Harriet. If you haven't seen the movie Harriet, please go see it. But she told me to watch it uh, from the Oscars. She sang this song uh, from the movie, and it's just so passionate, and you can hear it, and it's about God and Moses, and, and then after that, I guess her name's, what's her name, Monet? Janelle Monet. she was the host or whatever, and she comes on, because uh, the next video pops up, and, and she does, um, like, this intro, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Mr. Rogers, and she talks to Tom Hanks, and she sings through the couch, and when she's done, she says, I'm black, and I'm a woman, and I'm queer, and, I, and, I, and I'm an artist, and everybody just, like, rejoices and jumps up and all this stuff, right? And I thought to myself, like, man, what I was saying earlier about love and contorting it and twisting it just to get what we want. When he says love does not rejoice, verse 6, rejoice in iniquity, like you can look and say, look, there's passion there and there's talent there and there's beauty there. Mary's telling me she's so beautiful. There's beauty there. There's all this kind of stuff. But you know what? There's iniquity, which means it's not love. We want it to be love. We feel like it's love. We can watch her love somebody else and think like, hey, that looks like love, but this is love's definition. And we don't get to change it based on what we're seeing and experiencing and what we want. Love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never fails. This love, not our love, not our definition of love, this love. Jesus lives this out, right? This kind of love for us to see uh, but these are probably the greatest sentences ever written about what love is. We get to watch it in his life, but if you want it in a, in a, in a quick dose of what it is, this is it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in my opinion. Don't take your favorite singer's definition. Don't take your favorite movie's description of what love is. Hold Jesus and these words up as your definition for what love is, what you're striving for, what you desire, what you want to give, what you want to receive. Hold this up and see what happens. Romans 8.37 says, says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, 
When we know what love really is and where it really comes from, and when we are assured that we have obtained that love, we're able to say that we can never be separated from it. Right? If you look at the definition, if you look at the life of Christ throughout the Gospels, right? If you, if you understand what love is and where it started in Genesis and what it is that God's trying to do in this whole thing that we call life, if you really understand that and you know what it's defined as, you can be able to say this. We say it all the time. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. But are we just like regurgitating and throwing stuff out there or do we really understand that nothing can separate us? I know what it is. I know where it comes from. I know that I have it and nothing can separate me from it. At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, we read through verse 8, but the last verse, 13, 13, says, Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. What it means to abide, what it means to remain or be in the presence of, right? It says that love is the greatest. You need faith and you need hope. Um, these are the things that are going to last. Your faith, your hope to, for the future, and love. And he says, but the greatest is love, <laughs> This is what's going to remain when everything else falls apart, when everybody else leaves you, when your health is gone, when your friends are gone, when your family's gone, when your job's gone, when your resources are gone, when your kids are gone. We pour ourselves into these kids and then they grow up and they don't even want to answer our calls anymore. <laughs> what's going to remain? Love, but not our love, his love. So Jesus is the archetype of the lover, and he was an idealist. An idealist is a person who is guided by how things are supposed to be rather than how they are experienced. That's what it means to be an idealist. Like, this is what it's supposed to be like, and this is what it, it was designed to be. But this is what I'm actually experiencing. It's hurting, and I'm hurting people, and they're hurting me, but it doesn't matter because love is supposed to be this. An idealist lives in the, the theory of what it's supposed to be rather than what they're actually experiencing. So when I say that Jesus is an idealist, what I'm saying is like he knows what love is supposed to be, and that's how he lives, regardless of what he's experiencing when he's in relationship with me, when he's in relationship with you. From the beginning, Jesus has believed in love. Against all the evidence, he stayed the course for his whole life. Even until death, he stayed the course, believing in love. While these people are, what did the song say? Um, I saw him hanging on a tree looking at me. He's still an idealist. He's on the tree, and they're nailing him to the cross, and he's saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's an idealist. It doesn't matter that I feel the nails. And that I can sense their anger. I'm still an idealist. I know that love never fails. So if this is true, every relationship and encounter that Jesus had was one of love. Consider that for a second. Jesus speaks and walks in love. He lives in love. And he can't do anything any other way. He doesn't have like a... a uh, a plan B or another option or another way of living. He just lives in love. He's just love and he believes in love and he's an idealist when it comes to love, which means everybody he encounters and every experience he's, that he has with people, on his end at least, it's a loving experience. Why is that important? Why should that be mind-blowing for you like it is for me? It means that when we look at the Gospels that tell the story of his life, 
Imagine if we looked at every word and every encounter as an insight into what the fullness of love looks like. Right? When you read about him and you see what he did or you see what he said and these encounters that he had with people, what we should be looking at when we read through the Gospels is saying, like, this is supposed to show me something about love. This should give me insight into what I think love is, and this should show me more about the fullness of what love is. If I look at his life and listen to what he did, what he said. For instance, uh, he weeps over Lazarus like we talked about last week. And what do they say? The people watching, they say, oh, look at how he, he loved him, right? Because he's weeping and crying. But what about when Jesus allowed him to die? There's also some insight into love there, isn't there? There, there should be. I'm, I'm asking you to consider that maybe there is. What about when Jesus is going to be crucified and there's a man walking home with his boys and uh, his children? And Jesus allows him to be taken from his kids in order to carry Jesus' cross. There should, what can we learn about the love of God in that experience? Is there something to learn about the love of God in that experience? Simon the Cyrenian. What about when Jesus is going to be crucified and Herod, uh, uh, Pilate has him sent to Herod and he's before Herod and Herod's asking him these questions and do miracles and show me something and Jesus is silent, doesn't say a single word to him. Is that hatred or is there something we can learn about God's love that's different than our love in that experience? What about when he's talking to Pilate and Pilate says, uh, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus says, um, are you asking me for yourself or did somebody tell you that and you just want to regurgitate what they, asked, what they told you? Do you really want to know? Pilate begins to tell him, I have power. Jesus says, you don't have any power. You only have the power that my father allows you to have. Is that, a, is that an aggressive encounter uh, where Jesus is, is taking some kind of stance, or is there something to learn about the love of God in that encounter? Somehow, in my opinion, everything that Jesus does or doesn't do is in perfect love. Yes. Jesus is always doing the best thing possible to draw every single person into a loving relationship with the Father. Again, I was telling you this week about some of the conversations having with, with, with uh, some of the leaders. And <clears throat> as I prepared this message, it, it really helped me to understand why, uh, why I was struggling with some of those conversations. It's because our definition of love is not his definition of love. How we want to express love is not how he always expressed love. And we can't do it our way. We have to do it his way. Sometimes it's tears and hugs and resurrection, and sometimes it's straight silence. <laughs> and other times it's walk away from everything you own right now and follow me. Like that's all love. There's no condemnation in that because Jesus doesn't condemn. We got to start operating with his definition and not our definition. When we first started the church, I'm going to get back on my notes here, but when we first started the church, one of the things I realized after like a year or two, I was like, you know what the problem is, babe? We're trying to love people the way they want to be loved instead of loving them the way that God has told us to love them. When there's only three people in the church and the fourth comes in, it's like, what do you want? Because <laughs> I'll give it to you. And then you know where you end up? Those people don't really encounter Jesus and then they're gone. Because you try to love them the way they want to be loved. Versus being able to say, look, you're, you're the fourth one to come in. It's just the two of us and one of our kids. But you know what? We're going to tell you the truth and hope you fall in love with Jesus. Yes. 
And if the truth is hurtful, it's okay. Jesus hurt people with the truth sometimes. If the truth is just so warm and embracing, Jesus was warm and embracing with people sometimes. It's all love. Amen? Amen. So we've got the origin of where all this love comes from. We've got the definition now, and I want to close, uh, as we bring this to a close, I want to look at the words and the actions of the actual archetype, right? Let's look at Jesus. First is words. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Say love. Love. Say Jesus is love. All right, here we go. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask for them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Isn't it funny how the world lives on the golden rule, which is just that part, and they skip everything else? Isn't that what it says? Just as you want men to do to you, do to them also likewise. That's not all he was saying. (laughs) Verse 32, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he's kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. We love that last one. Give and it will be given back to you. It's going to be pressed down, shaken together, overflowing, and it's coming back to you. We like to think about our finances when we share this scripture, but that's not really what he's talking about primarily. He's talking about sacrificial love. If you give sacrificial love without any regard for what's going to come back to you, it will come back to you, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. He says, love your enemies. I don't care if you love your kids, love somebody else's kids. I don't care if you love your wife, do something for another couple. He says anybody can love their own people. (laughs) Anybody can help those who are helping them. Don't just lend, give. I don't want this back, this is for you. Take it. He says, anybody, he keeps using sinners because what he's trying to say is, you're supposed to be saints, you're supposed to be Christians, you're supposed to have the breath of God breathed into you and be born again. He says, sinners can give to somebody if they're going to get it back. They can help if they're going to be helped back. My people are supposed to help when they're not going to get anything in return. They're supposed to love the unlovable. They're supposed to give to the poor that can't even give back to them. They're supposed to keep going on sidewalk sanctuaries to get the love of God out there, knowing that people are going to take that free burger and go home. (laughs) 
We're not supposed to do the math and say, well, 2,700 burgers in eight years and one salvation. I don't know if it's worth it. God says, don't hold on to your possessions and give more than what is asked for. He says, he wants your cloak. Give him your cloak and then go get another jacket and give it to him too. I love it when people hit me with scripture. On Tuesday night before the men went out, we were here and I was cold and we knew we were going to go out to dinner with all the men at a a yard house. And Gary was here and he says, he says, hey, I'll meet you there. Do you want to, do you want a sweater? I'm like, no, I'm tough, bro. I'll be all right. I'm going to sit under the heater. But in my heart, I was like, yeah, I'm kind of cold, man. Can you? And he was like, he's like, I'll just bring you a sweater. And I was like, okay, man, just, you know, don't bring me like a cheesy one. Bring me, bring me a good one. <laughs> and he was like, brother, anything I have, you can have it. I'll give you two. He was hitting me with scripture. That's what he was trying to say. This, this scripture that we're talking about. He said, I'll bring you two. Love when people hit me with scripture. This whole turn the other cheek, right? Like the world is in in uproar when Christians say turn the other cheek. And Christians get mad when we say turn the other cheek. God must not have meant that. It's not about being tough enough to be physically abused. It's about being so humble that you're willing to be humiliated. It's about responding in love and in submission rather than anger and frustration. God's not trying to tell us, Let's see how tough we are. Smack me on the cheek. I'm going to turn the other cheek. What he's saying is when you get smacked in the face, when somebody disrespects you that way, when they smack you in the face on Facebook, when they smack you in the face on their way out the church that you've served them in for years and years and years, when they smack you in the face like that, he says, turn the other cheek and be prepared for it to happen again. You need to be humble and you need to respond in love, not in anger, not in frustration, and not to defend yourself. And what does he say? He says, because that's how I love. And you're after me. You're not after yourself or after your parents or after your friends or after your family. You're, you come after me. I'm the firstborn amongst many brethren. Yeah. You want to live like that and love like that? Go somewhere else. If you want to be with me and with my father, the same one I'm praying to my father saying, I want them to have the love that we have. He says, this is how we do it. Mm-hmm. We turn the other cheek. Sure. One of my favorite songs is talking about this. And it says, he says, um, It's not thick skin, it's a new heart. (laughs) He's saying, I don't respond this way to people because I have thick skin and I've learned to to take drama from people. He says, I have a new heart. Has the church been trying to help you develop thick skin in how you deal with people? Or has the church been trying to encourage you to be born again and have a new heart in how you deal with people? Jesus' words here take love to a whole nother level just like he does that a lot in his word. He did it with adultery, right? He says adultery isn't just physically fornicating. He says, if you have lustful thoughts, you've committed adultery. You see how he just elevates it? (laughs) He does the same thing with love. He was like, oh, you thought love was just like staying married and and taking care of your kids? He's like, no, 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 let me elevate that for you. Love your enemies, those who spitefully use you and talk bad about you and take your stuff. Love to another level. That's why we need the word of God, because if you just go on your feelings and you don't know the word of God, you won't have any chance when it comes to love. You can't even you can't hit the target if you don't know what the target is. You can't even be going down the right road if you don't know where the road is leading. And let me tell you, when it comes to love, this is where the road is leading. There's no alternative road. God doesn't have a less loving road for some of us to get on. 
Doesn't he say that? It's narrow and there are few who find it. So Jesus gives us these words. He models it for us in his life and in his crucifixion and in his humiliation, right? They slap him. They beat him. He responds in love. He responds in humility. <clears throat> what is his, his, uh, his encouragement, though, in verse 35? Love your enemies. Do good. Lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. I'm so glad he's kind to the unthankful and the evil. That's where he found me. And every now and then he still finds me there. <laughs> being unthankful, being evil, and he just responds in kindness. I take a Sabbath now, Friday evening to Saturday evening. And it's funny, once you start taking a Sabbath, how many people want to ruin that for you? <laughs> Nate tried to ruin it first thing in the morning yesterday. And I, and I thought to myself, because I was struggling, like he did a couple things that were just out of character and I was just angry and I was trying to be holy and stay in my Sabbath. And then I was also trying to be like, God, like how would you respond? Because I'm hot right now and I want to ruin his whole weekend for what he did. <laughs> and then God's telling me, yeah, actually, but I'm pretty kind when you're unthankful, Vaughn. I'm pretty merciful. pretty merciful when you just do uncharacteristic things. And he says, that's love. Love your son like I love you. Mm. So he got wet cell pretzel yesterday. <laughs> After all that. Let's close. That was the words of Jesus. We're going to close with the act of Jesus, this act of love. Luke 17, 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Remember we talked about these, these other places the explorer goes. He passed through Samaria. Remember that place. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers. Say ten. Ten. They stood afar off. They lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Isn't it funny how obedience works? Yeah. How many of us have been wanting something from God, but we won't do what he tells us to do? Don't answer that question. <laughs> they have like a serious issue here. And he says, go show yourself to the priest. They just said, okay, and started walking and they got the healing they were looking for. But that's not the message anyway. He said, go, show yourself to the priest. So as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God, fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? Say ten. Ten. But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Isn't it amazing? 
God does this healing, and don't get me wrong, I think all of us would be that way, like, oh, God, look, my skin is back, I'm healed, I feel strong, and you're running for joy, and then one of them's like, oh, hey, man, thanks. What's your name again? <laughs> now, now, that I, now that I'm cleansed and I can actually get close to you, I don't have to yell, Master, help me. Now that I don't have to be far, yes. it's up to me to come close. And then Jesus, he shows us something else about love here. Love blesses in advance. <clears throat> that kind of love draws people into salvation. It draws people into a deeper relationship with him because it comes in advance. It doesn't come once you've proven yourself to God, then he loves you. No, he pours love out on you before you've done anything. And even if only one of 10 come back, Jesus remains an idealist. So I'm going to keep doing it this way. My return on investment to the world doesn't look very good. I heal all these people and only one comes back. The world would tell me to do something different. He says, but I'm an idealist. I'm going to keep loving this way. Romans 2.4 says, don't despise the riches or of his goodness, his forbearance, and his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. One last story about these 10 lepers. Here's another one, Mark 1. He was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him. He was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in a deserted place, and they came to him from every direction. I close with this story, and I love this story. It's a brief story in the scriptures, but I think we see so much about the love of God, the power of God. First thing he says is, if you're willing, he comes with faith. He comes with an ask. If you're willing, I know you can heal me. I know you can make me clean again. And Jesus says, I'm willing, but he doesn't do it like he did for the 10 who were afar off. And he just yells at him, go, go, to the, go to the priest, show him what I've done for you. He reaches out and touches him. See, the love of God is so specific to us. This leper had not been touched in God knows how long, right? But the love of God says, I'm going to reach out and touch you. I'm not afraid of your illness. I'm not afraid of your, your sickness. I'm not afraid of, that it's contagious. I don't have to worry about your sin getting on me because I know my love is about to get on you. The power of light is more powerful than the power of darkness, Jesus says. The power of love, the power of healing is greater than the power of sickness. So he does this for this man. And I think... I don't know, I'm speculating, but I think that at least in the moment, this man was, was more blessed by the touch of Jesus than the healing of his skin. Amen. I think he might have said, you know, if I had to choose between being touched again or just having my skin be cleaned again, I, I want to be touched. It's not just about the cleansing of my skin. I want to be touched. I want to be embraced. I want to be loved. 
I want family again. I want relationship again. I want to be able to sit in a house with people. I want to be able to sit around a table with people. I want to be able to eat and pass food to one another. I want to be able to, to grab a drink and people not, not back away from me. And Jesus did all that out of love. And he went looking for him. He went searching out these types of people. And then what does Jesus say at the end? He says, New Testament, go to the church and you give what was commanded of you to give. He says, this will be the testimony. Not just that you look better, not just that you say you met me, but you give what Moses commanded you to give. You share what I've done in your life. And what does it say happened from those two things? This man was obedient again. And what happened? So many people, he even told them, don't tell anybody about me. Just do that. And the man's like, no, I can't. I'm going to tell everybody. And it says that Jesus couldn't even come into the city because so many people were coming to him saying, look, we saw what you did for him. He told us that you touched him. He's now giving when he wasn't giving before. And we want what he has now. Yeah. Jesus couldn't even come into the city anymore. This is love's definition, guys. A touch, willingness, love the unlovable, and then regenerate us, right? Yes. Go back to the scripture I said before about when, when God breathed life into us, then Jesus with the disciples, he breathes life into the gym they're again, and they're regenerated. And I hope you can see it now with this leper. And when you read the scriptures through your gospels on your own, you'll see it that what's actually happening is God is breathing life into people again. He's regenerating them again. And he's taking them back to where he originally started with each and every one of us. Why don't we stand? We're going to pray. The archetype of the lover. The origins of love. The definition of love. And then love in word and love in action. So good. So important. She said, <laughs> I saw him there hanging on a tree looking at me. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I would ask you just to, just to picture, and not just picture, ask maybe God for a vision of his love. And we've seen it in these three different ages or eras or times. We see it. Maybe for a second, right now, just, just begin to think back to the beginning. There's God, the triune God, the Trinity, and they say, let us form man in our image. And just imagine them talking, and, and there's Adam, and he's being shaped, and he's being formed. And think about the love involved in that shaping, and the love involved in that forming. Think about the love of God breathing life into him, and he becomes a living being. He's aware, he's awake. He has eyes, and he sees God. And he feels love. It's surging through his body. He can feel it on his skin. Imagine goosebumps for the first time. And he's in the presence of God. He's in the love of God. Maybe you can see Eve off to the side. And she becomes a living being. She's aware. And there's God. His spirit, his son, and the father, there with her, communing with her, talking with her, telling her what she's about to see, telling her about this man named Adam that she's about to meet, this world that she's going to live in, and how she's going to stay connected to him, all these things. There's love. 
Now maybe you see Jesus and he's walking on the earth and he's touching people and he's healing them and he's loving on them and he's eating with them. He's raising their, their dead ones back to life and cripples are getting up and walking. Deaf are seeing or hearing. The blind are seeing. All these things are happening. And then all of a sudden you see him and he's on a cross. All his love and all his goodness and everything that he poured out has actually led him to a cross where he's humiliated, where he's beaten and he's bruised and he's broken. But he's still an idealist and he says, your name. You see him hanging on the tree, but he's looking at you and he's calling you by name. And he says, it's because I love you. It's because I love you. It's because I love you. Don't listen to the world's definition of love. Don't believe this other man when he tells you he loves you. Don't believe this woman when she tells you he loves you. It's my love that you need. This is why I'm here. This is what I've come to do for you. And then maybe this morning, well into the future, you can see the Lord calling you into deeper love. You're here because you've been touched already. You've been healed already. You've been ministered to already. You've experienced God and his love in some way, shape, form, or fashion. But maybe this morning you recognize that you're one of 10 lepers and God's saying, will you be the one to turn back and come back to me and say, thank you. I love you too. I want more of you. I want time with you. Time is the ingredient for love. I want your environment, God, an environment of abundance. In a second, I'm going to open the altars and I'm going to ask that against any fear, you would be humble. That against any um, hesitation, you would be willing for the sake of Christ to make your way to the altar. And by doing that, you're saying, I'm the, I'm the tenth one. I'm the one when everybody else stayed in the seat. I'm the one when everybody else went walking towards home. I remembered what you did for me and I came running back to you. In a minute, I'm going to give you that opportunity and open the altars for prayer. Our prayer team will pray with you. But first, like we always do, is there anybody that needs salvation this morning? You're not saved, but you want to be. Raise your hand so I can see you. Hallelujah, Lord. We're all in his love. So now all we have to do is say, by your definition, Jesus, not mine, but yours. And I'm going to come running to you. I'm not going to wait. The altars are open. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you that it's the pinnacle. It's the purpose. It's the reason. It started in love. The middle was love. The end was love. And it wasn't the end. You resurrected, Lord. The future is love. Eternity is love. It's beyond and before everything. And we just want to enter into that love. Would you meet us at this altar, Lord? We come back to you like a leper who has been healed. We come in obedience, Lord God. Tell us what to do and we'll do it. We come to experience your love, Lord. We want to hear your voice. Speak to us. Meet us here in this place this morning, Lord. We love you because you first loved us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Altars are open. Come to the Lord. Come to the Lord. I was nowhere you came to my rescue. From the grave I've been raised. When I needed a savior to save me, Jesus, you made a way. I was blind, but these eyes have been opened.
listening. The Way would love you to visit our church at 451 West Lambert Road, Suite 204 in the city of Brea. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.thewaybrea.com or you can download our church app by visiting your app store and searching The Way Brea. Be blessed.